Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain Podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with an aim to promoting a clearer understanding of its contested future, perhaps busting a few myths along the way, introducing some new ways of thinking, and making connections between Labour's history, its present, and future. I'm Laura Beers, Professor of History at American University in Washington, D.C., and my co-host is Stephen Fielding, Emeritus Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham. Steve, say hello. Hello. <laughs> hello. And today we're joined by Jim Tomlinson, who's Professor of Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow. Jim has published widely on the historical political economy of modern Britain, most recently in his Managing the Economy, Managing the People, Narratives of British Economic Life from Brexit to Beverage, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017, and his Deindustrialization and the Moral Economy in Scotland since 1955, with Jim Phillips and Valerie Wright, which was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. Jim is currently completing a book tentatively titled Churchill and Industrial Britain, Liberalism, Empire, and Employment from 1900 to 1929. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here with us today, Jim. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we wanted to start off, we're going to, as we do um, every episode, you know, look back to the past to think about the future, but we wanted to start off in our current moment, um, where the Labour Party, for the first time in what seems like forever, has a sustained and substantial lead in the polls. For the past several months, Labour has been about 20 points ahead of the Conservatives, and it looks extremely likely that Keir Starmer will be given the opportunity in less than two years' time to form a government for the first time since 2010. And I've been thinking a lot about what it means that while Labour has a substantial lead in the polls overall, that Starmer and Sunak continue to remain neck and neck over who is the better one to lead the economy despite the fact that the Tories have tanked Britain over the past dozen years through extended austerity and a failure to guide the country um, through the COVID crisis more profitably. profitably. And, um, you know, how this, alongside the fact that if you look at other countries, including the United States, where I'm based, you see the Republicans holding on to a lead in terms of who's better to manage the economy despite the fact that their own record is, is similarly parlous, right? I mean, 
is there something about a kind of the left-right divide that gives an entrenched benefit to parties of the political right in terms of public perceptions about economic competency? And what can the Starmer government in waiting do to combat those entrenched biases if that does in fact explain why labor can be so far ahead in the polls generally, but not doing as well in terms of these perceptions of economic competency. And with that, I'll stop talking and give it over to Jim. Okay, thanks very much, Laura. So yes, I mean, one of the questions is about competency and what what actually the pollsters are picking up, uh, because they tend to ask pretty broad questions about the economy. You know, how, which party is better at managing the economy? And I, I think one of the problems about that is that I think over time, one suspects that you know the public are picking up different ways of thinking about what it means to manage the economy well or badly. I mean, if you go back, I don't know, 30, 40 years, there's a very lot, a great deal of literature which assumed that really all that mattered was unemployment and inflation. You know, those were two things. And there were lots of sort of political science models which were all based about, you know, if they if if, if parties got inflation and unemployment uh, right, then they were basically do well and, and vice versa. And then we've had a period, I think, since where there's been a lot of emphasis uh, on the budget deficit um, as the key issue and that obviously continues to a degree. And if you listen to Rachel Reeves, you know, she's every time I hear her speak, she says, you know, no commitments without taxation and, you know, no big deficits of current, current spending only from uh, current revenues and will only borrow to invest. I wonder whether you know, there's, a, that, there's a kind of lag in that because I'm not convinced that at the moment the public are really that much into worrying about the deficit, even though <laughs> the deficit is actually very, very big at the moment. So I just wanted that kind of bit of a thing which sometimes has to be teased out. What are you? What are, what are we picking up when we find that um, voters are, are talking about whatever party it might be not managing the economy very well? Um, because clearly there's, there, there tends to be you know, crisis aspect to that i mean clearly at the moment the tories are suffering from the from the you know the whole trust debacle. <laughs> uh is that what's really mattering or is it is it more underlying things about what's happening to personal living standards um because those are rather different kind of things because obviously to some extent perhaps sunak can do something about just looking not quite so crazy as the people who came before and therefore just offering a kind of reassurance of that, you know, just looking like someone who's, who's, who's you know, at least averagely competent. But then doing something about that is rather different from actually doing something about, you know, what's happening to living standards, which I take it in one sense is the key economic issue at the moment. And I think it's in that light interesting that, Starmer, in his speech the other week, laying out Britain's plans for the future, said that he would make Britain the fastest, Britain's GDP the fastest growing within the G7. And focusing on GDP growth, which is sort of, you know, a measure of productivity growth, right, and linked to, you know, at least in an abstract sense, rising standards of living. And I was inspired by that to go back and look at trends for GDP growth in Britain over the years for the last century. And it really isn't since the 1980s that, you know, any government has had GDP growth above 5%, right? I mean, British 
and GDP is sort of more or less stagnated with some notable dips after the 2008 crisis and during COVID. Um, and so how, if, if it's about, you know, creating rising standards of living, and if the way to do that is growth, and that's maybe something you want to say, you know, to contest, but I mean, how, how is that actually going to be something achievable by either a Sunak or a Starmer government? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there there is sort of, I mean, it's interesting what you say, Jim, about changing perceptions of of economic competence, and maybe maybe things have changed, but maybe Starmer and Rachel Reza are slightly behind the curve because, yeah, everybody everybody now agrees about growth. Um, that that's it. all of a sudden that word suddenly appeared, you know, in terms of how you know politicians were talking about the economy. All of a sudden they realised the British economy wasn't growing, and and all of all of a sudden they also seem to realise, possibly prompted by um, sort of strikes, uh, that that many many people in Britain weren't being paid enough that, that you know there'd been real, a real decline in 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 wages in in incomes and something had to be done um so i think I think labor's at this point sort of caught between sort of trying to address more con- more traditional ideas of economic competence about keeping the deficit down or at least trying going somewhere to reduce a deficit because that is i mean i was reading alistair uh, Darling's memoirs uh, about the last few years of being Chancellor in, in the Labour government under Brown, and the need, the sort of this this need that we've got to be seen to be bringing that deficit down in terms of after they sort of um, sort of um, did, bailed out the banks, uh, but Labour has to keep has to be seen to be doing this far more than the Conservatives. That there seems to be that sense, um, and I think Starmer and Reeves have got that. That you've got to have that. To get through to people that you will be economically competent, that m- maybe that that link, as Jim was suggesting, is kind of actually gone, given how huge the deficit is, and nobody, the public, don't seem to be that bothered. Um, that the the real maybe idea of what's economically competent is growth, is getting the economy growing, but getting people's share of that growth to be higher, um, to maybe have some sort of redistribution again. I don't know if the if if that's at the heart of the decline of the conservative sense of economic competence, because Labour does have a lead now, at least a narrow lead in terms of managing the economy. It's very, re- it's very recent compared to its lead in the polls. It's one of the last categories that it's got um, in terms of a lead in, in terms of competence for all kinds of policy issues. So, yeah, there, we, we maybe are in an interesting moment where people's idea of what the economy is 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 maybe subtly changing. You know, support for strikers that I don't think the Conservative government expected, and certainly Starmer didn't expect, which is why they were quite, you know, don't don't have any shadow cabinet ministers on the on the picket line. Um, but at at the moment, Starmer is kind of maybe being understandably cautious um, about how people see economic competence. But I think the five missions that we can maybe talk about at some some point um, does suggest he's also trying to address some of those new expectations of economic competence. Yeah, just, just turning to the question about the, the, well, the five missions, as you mentioned. I mean, obviously, the one that's most focused on the economy is, as you rightly say, the growth one, matching um, the G7 or beating the G7. Um, I mean, one of the things there I find is whether growth is 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 the way to, to kind of gain popular support. I don't know whether you've seen it, there's a quite well um, 
known episode during the run-up to the um, uh, Brexit referendum where an academic uh, um, is, is talking about the impact of uh, Brexit, potential impact of Brexit on uh, GDP. And someone in the audience, I think it was in Newcastle, shouts out, that's your bloody GP, GDP, not ours. <laughs> and I think that's quite an interesting. It has been picked up by a number of people, and I think rightly, because, yeah. you know, partly it alerts us to the language of talking about the economy, um, which, which you know, we use, uh, we, we, we claim some familiarity with, but does it have much resonance? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure um, whether, you know, what does growth mean to most people? Um, I think it's obviously intended to carry the implication of rising living standards, but if that's so, why not say that? Or why not even make it more explicit, as you say, uh, Steve, you know, if there's falling wages, you know, why not say our key aim is to get real wages to rise? It seems to me that you know that has a bit more immediacy and, and uh, obvious uh, meaning than than talk of growth. I, I, you know, leaving aside all the problems about whether growth really is a good indicator of, of rising living standards, about which, of course, enormous number of things could be said. But in terms of sort of selling a political argument about what you want to achieve, I'm not sure growth is really the, the most helpful way of phrasing it. Um, and, and I think linked to that partly is, you know, obviously, as we know, what happens to growth is not that easy to control, <laughs> um, you know, over the long run. And I, I thought, I, I don't know whether you saw the comparisons with Poland, which I thought were quite interesting, saying, you know, if trends continue like this, Poland will be richer than us in so many years' time. Well, of course, if you're a poorer country, you tend to have faster growth rates than richer countries because you're catching up with them. And that's clearly what's happening with Poland. So, I, you know, I'm a bit, I'm fairly sceptical about whether these kind of growth stories are, are politically particularly helpful. Well, I think, I think that, I mean, I think Labour, it's just all, all political journalists are talking about growth. You know, Truss was talking about it. Like, you know, it's, I think it's just become, you know, the word that, that politicians have to talk about, and it is an issue. It clearly is an issue. Um, but I think I think you're right, Jim. That if 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 Labour could talk in more direct language, um, it might it might help. Although, of course, Keir Starmer's not famous for um, for his direct language. Um, but one the point the point I I would make is that perhaps this suggests a sort of traditional caution for Labour to be too associated with with workers. You know, if you say we're going to increase real real incomes and this and that, which is kind of in in the program there somewhere, but if you say it too explicitly, then they're probably afraid. Oh, what you know, will we be associated being too close to the unions and that kind of thing, which is of course a labour obsession, along with we've got to get the deficit down if if you're in a you know if you're in a in you're in a recession. Um, but uh, Laura, you think you've got a point you want to make? Well, I think it. you said, well, growth is in the ether and trust and all that. But I think the sort of going back to trust and the lessons to be taken from that debacle, as we'll just call it. But I mean, her emphasis on the need for growth, really, she was emphasizing the need for growth without any interest in the need for an equitable type of growth. Right. What needed to grow were the you know, what she saw as the kind of profitable money making sectors of the economy 
And she wasn't particularly interested in how that growth trickled down. And I think the issue of equality and how growth, broader macroeconomic growth does or does not translate into things like higher wages and higher standards of living is something that is much more on the political radar than it was, say, in 1997, when Blair came into power, and something that Starmer, I think, really should be grappling with when he talks about growth. What does equitable and just, socially just growth look like within an economy? And I think it was very easy to take down trust for her total failure to take that into consideration, but it's perhaps more difficult to to concretely sort of put forward a positive program for growth that translates into equitable growth. Yeah. I mean, Jim, I mean, so Laura's mentioned the B word, um, Tony Blair, New Labour, 1997. And, and there are certain people that say, oh, Keir Starmer is just, just a Blairite. What he's doing is his economic policy. It's retreating away from the great programme that, that Corbyn had and everything. I mean, what do you think about comparisons between what you know that is being proposed at present by, by Labour and the extent to which it could be fairly defined as Blairite. Uh, that, yeah, that's that's quite um, quite tricky. Um, I mean, I, actually, I, what I was struck by the other day in, in what Stan was saying, um, when it was linked to the growth issue, when he said effectively, I don't think he put it quite so starkly, but in, the implication was no redistribution without growth, i.e. that growth, growth is the thing which makes in it reducing uh, inequality possible. Now, of course, that, as you know, goes well back, goes back, I think, to the 1950s when effectively growth was first invented. And one of the reasons it was taken up so enthusiastically was because of the idea that it meant you didn't have to, you know, in the, the, the typical um, uh, wording was, you know, we don't have to battle over the size of the cake, uh, redistributing it, uh, we can grow the whole cake and we can everybody can get more kind of stuff. And I think that what I regard as a kind of classic social democratic view um, of why growth is a good thing, because it allows you to have relatively painless, relatively painless redistribution. Now, of course, uh, you know, and that in a sense is also, I think, very Blair kind of, 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 of Blair Brown view of the world, um, that if you can, um, you know, reform the economy in all the sort of ways uh, some of them quite you know pro market ways um, that gives you the revenues and then you can make a serious assault on poverty and indeed that in many ways is what new new labor did do i mean they did you know they did they did liberalize the economy but they also did make a serious assault on on poverty um, the trouble is <laughs> you know if you then don't get much growth are you basically saying well redistributions out of the out of the window, basically. That's that's yeah. the problem you, you've got. Um, and if you believe, as I tend to, that the scope for sustained growth is actually quite limited, then I think that's a real that's a real problem. I mean, if you if you take the view that, um, well, combination of things, uh, I would say, the aging of the population, the impact of that on the structure of the labour force plus what I would regard as very important, which is the shift of um, resources out of manufacturing and into the service sector, which greatly reduces the scope of productivity increase. You know, everybody has slowed down over the last few, you know, few years. 
as Laura rightly said in the introduction, we've slowed down more than most. But everybody's pretty much, all, you know, all rich countries have slowed down. Um, how much growth is can you going to get? I, I, I worry that you you know if you if you say it all depends on growth, <laughs> you're setting yourself up for a disappointment. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just read um, Rachel Reeves's speech she gave to the Fabians in in January, which I hadn't come across uh, before. And uh, I mean, she outlines what she calls a, a modern supply side approach to the economy. You know, governments sort of pump priming investment. Uh, building up public services, um, but also she says in that, and 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 also giving workers more rights. And actually, within within Labour's sort of what they call the New Deal for 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 employment, they um, they are giving unions more power to negotiate higher wages um, in terms of like think sectoral agreements and things like that. But but greater great greater rights. But she says in the midst of this. In the midst of this, and I don't know if it really addresses a, this this sort of thing about growth, this dependence upon growth itself, but she says that inequality is an impediment to growth, right? It's just there in the sentence. Now, Labour politicians are, say things um, and then they move on. And but if you if you think that she's going, if that's going to be taken seriously, that you know that is a way of maybe thinking about a, a slightly different way of looking at growth. So it won't just be growth for growth. You know, things have to be done to get that growth, um, and I think they are they are placing some some emphasis on on a re, uh, on readdressing what's been going on the last ten fifteen years in terms of you know incomes, which I think they hope will create some demand and some growth, and then become um, what and. I don't know if she put it, said it, she meant to say virtuous circle or a virtuous cycle, but Angela Rayner. I mean, you might you might have heard this before from quite a few of them. Labour's pro business and pro worker, right? Um, and that by addressing those two different sides, there will be growth. You know, in a virtuous circle of growth. But I think it does presuppose doing something active. You know, in terms of the labour market, at the very least, to get growth going, which does imply some kind of inequality being addressed. Yes, and isn't also a sort of contradiction in terms if you're saying that you won't have growth without reducing inequality, but there won't be social redistribution until you have growth, then I mean if you can't have the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken, then how do you actually change the status quo? Jim, we'll let you answer that since you are an economic historian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the point that Steve makes is a, is an interesting one. If, um, if you say it may only have been a line in a in a, in a in a much bigger statement, but the idea that inequality—you know—why why should we, you know the, the classic question? Why should one worry about inequality? And of course, the answer is many different reasons. But if you can make the argument that it impacts on economic performance, that it impacts on people's living standards, not only obviously in the direct sense that those people at the bottom end of the distribution uh, are doing poorly, but also that actually it improves the efficiency of the economy. Um, you know, by, for example, making more resources available for people at the bottom end of the distribution to acquire skills and education, and, and that then feeds into better forms. I think that's actually quite a powerful argument, um, uh, you know, which which moves moves the issue in a, in a in a what could be a kind of appealing way. You know, if one assumes that the left is sort of naturally egalitarian, it should be looking for all sorts of good reasons to be egalitarian. And if, if a plausible one of those is that it improves economic performance, that seems to me something one should 
you know, should take up and, and, and address seriously. And it's a, it's a line. It's not. It's a line which you'll find in quite mainstream economics now. It's not. It's not a kind of um, you know eccentric Labour Party thing. It's it's quite mainstream economics to argue that now. How politically do you make the argument as the Labour Party? I think that you're going to to redistribute and to try to rein in inequality in order to in the or in the hopes that that will create the groundwork to facilitate growth because we've just been talking about the fact that the labor party is is nervous about saying we won't just grow the pie and therefore be able to give everyone a bigger slice but that we'll redistribute a pie that is is growing not much at all or sort of very slowly right and while i agree with you jim that it is becoming increasingly accepted within sort of economic thought that a more just society i mean i think since um piketty's book a few years ago really made us think about the corrosive impact of inequality more broadly but for labor specifically to say we're going to address inequality before growth in the hopes that addressing inequality will lead to growth instead of saying we'll get growth first and then we'll do something about those worse off, I think is politically difficult. And how does how does labor successfully do that within a political context, even if it's the right thing to do, um, you know, sort of in terms of economics or social justice? Well, they, I mean, I think they, they do, well, they do more than they, they're doing now. I mean, in terms of the rhetoric. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I was struck, I was watching a conversation on one of those TV panel political panel shows um and the late and the labor mp was they were talking about um about dealing with you know women working with their menopause and what employers need to do to, to stop women just sort of relieving the labor market to ensure that they're dealt with in a in a fair and equitable way to keep them you know in their jobs and the labor and the labor the labor person was was saying actually this is about growth you know, by keeping these women, by treating them in this way, when they go through the menopause, they keep you keeping them in the labour force. You're helping growth. So that kind, of, the growth argument is kind of being implicated in things about equality, uh, about inequality, about those kinds of issues. Now, if if that becomes a kind of that wasn't just a random Labour MP using you know growth as the reason and inequality. You know, we need we need to have address inequality to get growth. Um, then that might be something, you know, if it isn't just a random Labour MP, that might be something. But I don't get a sense that the top commander are going to be emphasising, you know, in order to get growth, we need to tackle inequality. Uh, because, I mean, I mean, historically, Labour has been very afraid of making those kinds of arguments, haven't they, Jim? I mean, the reason why they talk about growth is because it's politically the easiest one to talk about yeah. when, you're, when, you're, when you're trying to win power. And does that I mean, does that not just store up problems for when you've actually got a Labour government? Are there any models, you know, of what Labour governments do when they reach that kind of point? Yeah, no, I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can point to the uh, the parallels um, with the with the nineteen sixties and the the promises made about growth uh, under the, under the Wilson government, which which were not achieved um, and probably not achievable. Um, <laughs> You know, given 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 the kind of constraints, I mean, and, and if you believe as I do that the constraints are much tighter now than they were then, that in many ways the conditions for growth in the fifties and sixties were much more favourable, um, uh, then then you know, I I, I think it's, it is a, it is a dangerous game. I mean, I mean, clearly, <laughs> if you just make it a relative thing, 
then to some extent you rescue yourself because you're just saying, you know, not the absolute level of growth. So, you know, in a, in a, in a, to give an absurd example, if the British economy grows, you know, half a percent a year, but the others only grow at 0.4, then you're top of the pile. But I don't think that's what the kind of imagery is. I mean, the imagery is of getting back to the kind of two, three, you know, four, even... Uh, if you remember, the 1960s, four percent was talked about, um, which I just think isn't isn't going to 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 to, to happen. So, you know, and, but one of the reasons it's it's not going to happen is to do with the labour market. So that's and I agree with what Steve was saying that focusing discussion on the labour market um, and what can be done to raise participation rates because that's one of the problems. About about the demographic shift, partly, but it's also, as you, Steve was saying, about you know the conditions of work in all sorts of in all sorts of dimensions. Um, I mean, you know, Britain has quite a high a women's participation rate compared with uh, many countries in Europe, and it's not the highest by any means. Um, there's higher levels in in Northern Europe, um, and if we regard that as you know something which which is inherently desirable but also again <laughs> beneficial for economic performance then i you know that's perhaps that's where the where the where the emphasis should be well that raises a question thinking about women's participation rates about an argument that labor has been making in terms of over a decades of underinvestment in social services and those social services include you know early childhood care and investment in nurseries which are folding because it just you know they're unable to keep their heads above water, but also investments in the NHS and in physical infrastructure, right? I mean, improvements to the railways, improvements to physical plants. And so I guess that raises the question of whether, you know, this is just tapping into a public sense of grievance, which is is rightly felt, right? Or whether greater capital investment in infrastructure and social services does have the potential to lead to more robust economic growth in the medium to longer term, Jim. I mean, you're very pessimistic about the possibilities of growth, but I mean, isn't there an argument that there that actual sort of, you know, capital investment in in the economy might lead to more robust growth in the the medium term? I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I probably am a bit pessimistic on growth, but I, I'm not sure capital investment is is the necessarily the key to this, because actually what you were talking about a moment ago, which I entirely agree with, um, about provision of, 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 of childcare uh, uh, and things like Sure Start and all those kind of things, um, of, of facilitating uh, women's uh, entry or re-entry into the labour market, because there's provisions which make that, you know, both financially and indeed socially, you know, desirable. That's not really, it's not mainly about capital, that's actually mainly about current spending. Um, and I think that's important to emphasise because, you know, we do have a problem, obviously, that tax rates are at an all-time high, as everybody is saying. So we need to, if, if you're going to commit, as I think, as, and again, I agree with Steve on this, although I, you know, it has a slightly sort of old-fashioned view in some sense to be banging on so much about uh, how we must, uh, you know, keep not have a deficit, you know, and so on. Um, it, if you've got very high taxes when you start, then clearly uh, you've got to think very carefully about spending priorities um, uh, and, and you know, what, what, what they should be. And I would say, you know, that the kind of things that you're talking about, Laura, should be very much the kind of priority. 
um, because they can be tied to improved economic performance and higher and higher living standards. You know, both both obviously in the in the obvious sense that household incomes rise, obviously, when 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 women in this case, enter the labour market, um, but also more generally, you know, it improves the um, it improves the performance of the whole economy. I mean, again, in this Rachel Reeves speech, in the, when she's talking about the modern supply side approach to the economy, one of the three elements um, does include, you know, maintaining public services. She said, she says in the speech, austerity is over. Right. I don't know what that means. That's, many people have said austerity is over then just never seems to go away. But austerity is over. And we need you know, public services play an important part in this, you know, growing economy. So so it seems I mean, I mean, what this is what sort of strikes me that um, with the best one in the world, when you say you're pro business and you're pro worker and also and sometimes they throw in pro climate. Right. Um, I mean, Labour. Labour goes into office thinking it can resolve all these differences or somehow growth will be the solve that can make sure you can be pro-business and you can be pro-worker. Um, but in the end, doesn't every Labour government um, conclude with them making a choice? Um, and usually it's, if we're looking at the Wilson government in the 1970 and the Callaghan government in the 19th, yeah, end of the 1970s in 1979 um and arguably kind of a bit more of a slow sort of deflation of of the relationship that it always ends up with workers feeling they're being shortchanged i mean is that not that's that's a kind of like a an undergraduate seminar question uh, to throw out there you know no no matter what what the best of intentions of a labor economic policy it usually ends something like sort of a corbynite it usually ends with the workers feeling shortchanged. Do you think that's how Blair is amended? I mean, the reasons Blair is amended are manifold, including an external global economic shock. But, I mean, it wasn't necessarily because the workers felt shortchanged. Well, they, well, um, they did. They did and they were. Um, I mean, I mean, yes, I think, think they did feel, I mean, they, they did feel they were shortchanged. That's one reason why the trade unions voted um, for Ed Miliband. That's why, in the end, they, they, they backed um, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, if you, if 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 the if you would if the Labour government had ended in two thousand and seven, <laughs> uh, you know, then you might we we might be saying, well, that was a you know a decade of success. Uh, and the bank's not collapsed. Yes, that <laughs> little detail. An exogenous shock really sort of threw that project. But I mean, that rising tide raises all ships. I mean, yes, had the Labour government just stopped in two thousand and seven, I don't think a major criticism of it would have come from the trade unions um, well, who were deeply implicated in that project for better or for well, worse. I think, think some, some trade unions and, you know, there were, there were some discontents um, about the heartlands and they weren't called the left behinds at that point. Labour was having some problems. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that was an unusual one. I mean, and it didn't end in 2007, but no. um, had, it, had it ended in 2007, that would have been an unusual one because of economic growth. Um, it was sustained, uh, but then it wasn't sustained. So that's how it ended. Um, but in in the Wilson government, you know, failed to get enough growth. It ended one reason, you know. So it ended in 1970. Uh, lots of discontent. Work, you know, unions were very upset. Um, deflation and all of that. Unemployment was starting to rise. The winter of discontent. We don't need to. We don't need to remind people what that was all about. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a dilemma in terms of managing matters that if Labour doesn't get the growth it needs, then there's good, there's usually trouble. And whether it wants to be pro worker and pro business, it usually means in terms of pursuit of economic respectability, it wants to cut back. It wants to keep you know inflation down. I mean, these are things that that are on historical record. Yeah, I mean, I think the sixties is interesting, isn't it? Because we've already talked about how the the um, the, the hope for four percent growth um, was not realised. But of course, actually, growth in the sixties, as in the fifties, was about the fastest it's been for a sustained period ever. So it's partly about you know the the gap between promise and um, performance. But performance actually was pretty good. I mean, it would, we'd be very lucky if we got back to 1960s levels of growth today. Um, but it's just that the Labour government pitched it so strongly because, that, you know, obviously their whole approach to the 64 election was to claim that the Conservatives had held back the economy and growth would be faster under, under Labour and so on. So they pitched it very strongly. And I suppose that's why I'm slightly worried about too much focus on growth, um, because looking back, how much is it under the control of government? Um, and therefore, if you, if you raise people's expectations, then, you, you know, you, you, you're just creating a rod... Uh, for your own back, and I say, particularly striking the 60s, because actually, the 60s was pretty good. <laughs> it's just it wasn't as good as the promise. Um, I mean, is, is there anything, is there a kind of a golden thread? I'm sounding like some really bad journalist. Is there a golden thread that runs through Labour government's economic policies that you can say, and and maybe goes into, into the Starmer kind of proposals, that actually defines, this is, this is a distinctive Labour approach to the economy that we can disentangle from the Conservatives. Now, I know the, the nature of the economic debate has shifted over over the post-war period. Um, you know, Thatcher, um, follow the, the, the social democrat consensus and whatever. But is there anything that is truly distinctive within these within Labour government's economic policies um, and that we can say has made a positive contribution to to um to to the British economy, um, so because because one of the things that conservatives always say, you know, in like may, maybe PMQs or when they where, they where things are killer line is there's never been a Labour government that's left office with unemployment lower than when it entered. Now is that is that the is that the Labour golden thread? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think I think again I, I would well. I think the trouble with golden threads is it does rather assume that there's a kind of, going back to the, where we started perhaps, that there's a kind of single measure of competency. And I mean, yeah. one of the things that, you know, about the moment is unemployment is not an issue in the sense that there are, of course, unemployed people uh, and they're very badly treated, uh, but they're not, you know, they're not the object of any major political argument. Um, you know, and that's itself in interesting why why is that the case well i would say in part because it's come to be recognized that the old phrase that you know unemployment is the best way out of poverty sorry employment is the best way out of poverty um is no longer true um that what we've got and this is one of the big changes of the last few decades is many many more people poor at work 
Um, and that, it seems to me, has changed the, the nature of the you know, business of managing the economy, but also talking about the economy quite a lot, um, because it, it is not longer the case that unemployment um, is, the, uh, is, is a kind of keystone to any successful argument about the economy. Um, and, you know, that, that's something that, that I think is, is, is very, very important um, and why is it that so many people who are at work are in poverty? Um, and that actually, you know, shifts um, the, 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 the debate from where it was, you know, when I was growing up, you know, the unemployment rate was treated as absolutely the thing that mattered, that every government was going to be measured by. Um, but that's no longer, no longer the case um, so I just, I say, I'm just wanting to emphasise that you know what what it is that we we talk about when we say, well, what have Labour governments done? Have they done lots of good things? Well, the standard changes, and I think we need to be sensitive to to how that both the structural things which are necessarily changing the stand, the, 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 the the measure, like changes in the nature of the labour market, but also as people's understanding of the you know what matters to them. Um, I mean, just to you know, follow on with that, to take us back to something we already talked about, I don't think there's much public worry at the moment um, about the level of taxation, despite the fact that it's the highest it's ever been. So, you know, that's an interesting, I don't, well, that's my perception anyway, uh, you know, so, so it's not at the moment that taxes um, are, are, are seen as a, as a big deal. Um, I noticed that even Sunak, I think, I was looking at his five um, promises, um, and that they don't include um, uh, taxation. Some of his backbenchers might, might might argue with that, but yeah, you yeah, that is interesting. You know, you say there isn't much public concern about taxation, and do you think that the fact that the public, despite record high levels of taxation, doesn't seem very uncomfortable with them? allows potentially a Starmer government to avoid the trap of feeling pushed back into the same austerity that the conservatives and before them, the coalition have pursued for so long. I mean, the type of deficit spending proposed by trusts, given how exposed Britain is to the global economy, you know, seems dangerous because obviously the pound can be tanked, you know, if the if exogenous forces are really opposed to deficit spending in a way that the United States is kind of protected from because it's so large, right? Um, but is one way to just continue to provide social services and to invest in some of the things labor wants to invest in just to tax people at a level that one might think they would be uncomfortable with, but maybe they've just become accommodated or resigned to? Yeah, it's a tricky one, though, isn't it? Because I think... I think I'm right in saying that the the opinion poll evidence shows that ever since I think the seventies, if you ask people, do they think we should cut taxes or raise, uh, you know, or, or allow spending to increase, they say allow spending to increase. If you ask them in an opinion poll, but if you then look at election results, you wouldn't say that that, that that's necessarily congruent with what people are saying. So you 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 have to be pretty careful there, uh, thinking that oh you know people don't care about tax; they'd rather spend. But 
on the other hand, I do think at the moment it is an interesting point that um, while obviously on the right of the Conservative Party, there are, you know, people obviously banging on about cutting taxes and so on, it doesn't seem to be where I think the public mood is. Um, I think the public mood um, seems to be you know, recognising that it, some increases in public spending are absolutely essential. Um, and, you know, <laughs> at least implicitly, that certainly means taxes ain't going to be cut. Now, of course, you know, again, we're back to growth, aren't we? Of course, if you have growth, you can have the best of both worlds. Um, you know, in the, best of, in the best of all worlds, you do what the Conservatives did in the 1950s, more public spending and tax cuts combined, uh, you know, because the growth rate was high enough to, to, to get away with that. But I don't think we're going to that world. Um, but a world where... Yeah, incremental increases in public spending, at least, you know, rising uh, probably a little faster than, than, than national income um, and GDP might be politically feasible, at least for a, for a period. Because um, I think to some extent, you know, the, the, the sort of tax cutters have been discredited. I mean, that's one thing that the trust did, really, wasn't it? I mean, it made you know tax cutters look like headbangers, which, which you know, they're not necessarily. I mean, there are you know there are sensible people who, who talk about tax cuts, but it, it kind of associated that kind of tendency with with a kind of slightly bonkers kind of you know overall stance, and that you know that's to some extent a moment to be taken advantage of one hopes. So labor and power could hope and work for growth. And if they don't get growth, spend anyway and pay for it with taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm implicitly setting out the options if, if, if growth doesn't turn out to be uh, quite as easily achieved. I mean, you know, some growth is clearly achievable. I mean, you know, but, but I think we're not going to return even to the sort of 2% um, that we had you know, before the before the um, recession, I mean, we might get a rebound. I mean, this is the trouble. Growing, you know, uh, clearly, there's there's scope for a, a bit of a rebound in Britain because uh, we're still, in some sense, in a kind of cyclical downturn. Um, but in terms of sustained growth, which is the terminology that Starmer used, hmm, not so sure. Steve, we had a pessimistic podcast today. <laughs> we have to find a way to end on an up note. Um, I'd, I, uh, well, I'm, I, I'm finding it very hard. Uh, but I, I would like to think, I would like to think um, that given in his shadow cabinet um, is what the most recent biographer of Harold Wilson, um, that, that Starmer is aware of the dangers of... Uh, of overhyping the need for growth and then failing. And so he's already thought that one through. I think that's about as optimistic as I can be on the on the back of what Jim has just said, which is like, well... Things can only get better. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. They did. What if they don't? What if they don't get better? <laughs> yes. yes. What, what if we don't even have the 1997 to 2007 before we get the 2007 to 2010. No, no, I think that's unduly pessimistic. I mean, I'm not, I'm actually an optimist about the world. Um, I just think that hitching your wagon or whatever to, 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 to growth too much is just a sort of dangerous political positioning. Um, well, 
I, I was I was at the Starmer speech in Manchester where he outlined the five missions and talked about the economy more. And he just, you know, why not? Why not Britain? Why can't we be the you know the leading economy in terms of wind power? Why can't we do all those things? Why not? So that's my optimism. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Okay. <laughs>